Welcome to the Disney View Podcast. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer. He's a one-time cast member, and he's been to Disney World literally hundreds of times. Listen in as he talks about one of his favorite things, the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, and occasionally beyond the Orlando theme park. And now, here's your host. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to take a little trip that's off the beaten path. And I'm going to talk about a topic that's related to Disney, and you'll kind of see how it all comes together, uh, through a three-part podcast. And it's going to take a little bit of explanation to kind of get there, but you'll understand how this all relates back to Disney as we get through the podcast. So let me get started. In the mid-1800s, Jules Verne was cranking out novels that set a new standard for a genre called science fiction. He may be considered the father of sci-fi, but his contemporaries in H.G. Wells and Hugo Gernsback were also entertaining audiences in, the, in this new space, telling people stories about fantastical times in the future. Now, Verne wrote several well-known tomes, such as From the Earth to the Moon, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and Around the World in 80 Days. But arguably, his best-known work, well, at least in Disney circles, was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Or it was, as it's known in French, sous les mers. Now, you may already real realize that a league is a measure of distance on the order of about 4 kilometers, or about 14 miles. And the title refers to the distance traveled while under the sea, not a depth below the surface. And that means the submarine in the story traveled about 20,000 leagues while under the seas, or roughly about six times around the Earth. Now, about the title. It's a bit of a transliteration. A literal translation of the French title would end in the plural seas, thus implying the seven seas, through which the characters of the novel travel. However, the early English translations of the title use sea, meaning the oceans in general. Now, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea tells us the story of Captain Nemo and his submarine, the Nautilus, as seen from the perspective of Professor Pierre Aronnax. The Cliff Notes version of the story goes something like this. A mysterious sea monster, theorized by some as the giant narwhal, is sighted by ships of several nations. The United States government finally assembles an expedition in New York City to track down and destroy the menace, and Professor Pierre Aronnax, a noted French marine biologist and narrator of the story, who happens to be in New York at the time, and he's recognized as an expert in this field, is issued a last-minute invitation to join the expedition. And he accepts. Canadian master harpoonist Ned Land and Aronnax's faithful assistant, uh, Conciel, are brought on board. The expedition sets sail from Brooklyn aboard a naval ship, and the monster is found, and the ship charges into battle, and during the fight, the ship's steering is damaged, and the three pro protagonists are thrown overboard. They find themselves stranded on the hide of the creature, only to, to discover to their surprise that it's a large metal construct. They're quickly captured and brought inside the vessel, where they meet the enigmatic creator of, and commander of the ship, Captain Nemo. The rest of the story follows the adventures of the protagonists aboard the submarine, which was built in secrecy and now roams the seas, free from any land-based government. Captain Nemo's motivations are, are implied to be both scientific and that thirst for knowledge, and a desire for revenge on and a self-imposed exile from 
civilization. Captain Nemo explains that the submarine is electrically powered and equipped to carry out a cutting-edge marine biology research. He also tells his new passengers that while he appreciates having an expert such as Aranox on board with whom he can converse, they can never leave because he's afraid they will betray his existence to the world. Aranox is enthralled by the undersea vistas he's seeing, but land constantly plots to escape. Their travels take them to numerous points around the world's oceans. The travelers witness real corals of the Red Sea, the wrecks of the Battle of Vigo Bay, the Antarctic ice shelves, the fictional submerged Atlantis. They don diving suits and go on undersea expeditions away from the ship where they hunt sharks and other marine life and have a funeral for a crew member who died when an accident occurred inside the Nautilus. When the Nautilus returns to the Atlantic Ocean, a pulpa, usually translated as giant squid, but uh, in the French, pulpa means octopus, attacks the vessel and devours a crew member. Now remember that this whole story is taking place in the 1870s, and really none of this was possible, so for Verne to have created such a fantastical world is simply amazing. Now the story suggests that Captain Nemo exiled himself from the world after an encounter with an oppressive country which affected his family. He's depicted as a champion of the world's underdogs and downtrodden. And near the end of the book, the Nautilus is tracked and attacked by a mysterious ship from that nation. Nemo ignores Aranox's pleas for amnesty and the boat retaliates. Nemo attacks the ship under the waterline, sending it to the bottom of the ocean with all the crew aboard as Aranox watches from the saloon. Nemo bows before this picture of his wife and children and is plunged into depression after the encounter, and voluntarily or involuntarily allows the submarine to wander into an encounter with the Mokenstromen, or Maelstrom, which is a whirlpool off the coast of Norway. This gives the three prisoners an opportunity to escape, and they make it back to land alive, but the fate of Captain Nemo and his crew is not revealed. Now, Jules Verne took great pride in making reference to Homer's Odyssey, to Matthew Fontaine Maury, a real-life oceanographer who explored and charted the seas, and to other Frenchmen who were captains and explorers. He even makes reference to France's most famous poet, Victor Hugo, when the Nautilus encounters the giant octopus. Some of Verne's ideas about the not-yet-existing submarines, which were laid out in the book, and they turned out to be prophetic and perhaps can be credited with glimpsing the military possibilities of submarines, and specifically the danger which they pose to the naval superiority of the Royal Navy, composed of surface warships. The fictional sinking of a ship by Nemo's Nautilus was to be enacted again and again in reality in the same waters where Verne predicted it by German U-boats in World War II. Now, the breathing apparatus that, used, that the Nautilus divers used is depicted as untethered version of an underwater breathing apparatus designed by two Frenchmen in 1865. They designed a diving suit with a, a backpack spherical air tank that supplied air through the first known demand regulator. And so the story of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ends, but the fate of Nemo is vague, and Jules Verne followed up with his sequel book, Mysterieuse. The Mysterious Island, a few years later. And this concludes the stories begun by 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But the problem is that Mysterious Island seems to give more information about Nemo's origins and outcomes, but leaves a little bit of chronological contradictions that makes the books a little bit incongruous in some way. So there's a lot of room for interpretation for what happened to them. Now, one other note about the novel. The original edition that Jules Verne put out had no illustrations. The first illustrated edition was published years later with with illustrations by other French artists based on Verne's rich narrative. So that's the backstory of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But this is a Disney podcast. And how does Disney weigh into this? How do they figure into the whole thing? Well, the answer is that in the late 1930s, 
Every major motion picture studio was looking for the next big innovation in the movies. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer had pioneered a new innovation in 1939, and that was color. And not only that, they had done it stunningly, using two well-known novels as the backdrops for the new, this new method of storytelling. The first release was The Wizard of Oz in August of 1939, followed by Gone with the Wind in December of the same year. As a result, every motion picture studio wanted to get in on this business. And so a race of sorts was on to acquire the rights to some of the world's most famous novels. In short order, Disney was able to snap up the rights to several, including 20,000 Leaves Under the Sea. But then, as you may have guessed, World War II got in the way. Large-scale theatrical productions based on novels were put on the back burner for a period of time, and instead there was a whole genre of films that centered around the war. Certainly there were other films made, but the war-themed films dominated the industry for years to come. But as the war ended, film production came back to broader topics. There was a thirst for new films that explored different worlds and different eras, and so in the early 1950s, Walt Disney gave a go-ahead to the production of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, for the most part, the film was a straight lift from the book. The centerpiece Nautilus relied on the descriptions by Verne and pulled heavily from the drawings that were done a few years later. The movie starred Kirk Douglas as Ned Land, James Mason as Captain Nemo, Paul Lucas as Professor Pierre Aronnax, and Peter Lorre as Conciel. It was the first science fiction film that Disney produced in the Walt Disney Productions, as well as the only science fiction film produced by Walt Disney himself. It was also the first feature-length Disney film to be distributed by Buena Vista Distribution, and the film had become the best-known adaptation of the book by the same name, and it was cited as an early example of the uh, genre of steampunk, or science fiction that typically featured steam-powered machinery. And this was Disney's fifth live-action film overall. Now, as far as the differences between the book and the movie, in the movie version, Nemo takes Aranax to the penal colony of Rurapenthe. Nemo uh, reveals that he once a, was a prisoner there himself, as well as many of the crew in the Nautilus. And the prisoners they see are loading munitions onto a ship. It embarks at sunset, whereupon the Nautilus rams it, destroying its munitions, cargo, and killing the entire crew. When confronted by Aranax, an anguished Nemo said that his actions have just saved thousands from death and war. He also discloses that this hated nation had tortured his wife and son to death in an attempt to force him to reveal the secrets of his work. Meanwhile, Ned discovers the coordinates of Nemo's secret island base, Volcania, and releases messages in bottles, hoping somebody will find them and free him from captivity. And then at the end of the movie, Nautilus returns to Volcania, where Nemo finds the island surrounded by warships, presumably because of the actions of land. The ships have deployed marines who are converging on his hideout. As Nemo goes ashore, Aranax realizes what's happening and realizes that Nemo will destroy the evidence of all his discoveries. He's right, and Nemo plants a bomb in his hideout, but is mortally wounded from a slug in the back while he's returning to the Nautilus. After haphazardly navigating the submarine away from Volcania, Nemo announces he will be taking the Nautilus down for the last time. Loyal to Nemo to the very end, his entire crew declared that they will accompany the captain to his death. Aranax, Conciel, and Ned are taken forcibly to their cabins. The Nautilus's crew is also retreated to their own cabins at Nemo's instructions. Ned breaks loose, overcomes the first mate who's tried to stop him, escapes to the now-deserted bridge, and manages to surface the Nautilus, hitting a reef in the process and causing the ship to begin flooding rapidly. In his final moments, Nemo staggers to the viewing window, collapses, and looks at his beloved ocean one last time as he dies. Aranax tries to go back to retrieve his journal, which contains detailed accounts of the voyage, 
But the urgency of their escape obliges Ned to knock him unconscious and carry him out. The companions witness Volcania destroyed in an explosion. Aranax's diary of the voyage is also lost forever, and when Ned apologizes for having hit him, the professor replies, Perhaps you did mankind a service, Ned. The shock of the explosion causes the Nautilus to sink even more quickly as it disappears beneath the waves forever. Nemo's last words to Aranax echo, And when the world is ready for a new and better life, all this will someday come to pass in God's good time. Now, as far as production of the movie goes, filming began in the spring of 1954, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was filmed at various locations in the Bahamas and Jamaica primarily, with cave scenes filmed beneath what is now the Shadabi Resort in the Cliffs of Negril. Some of the location filming sequences were, also, were so complex that they required a technical crew of over 400 people to be involved in it. The film presented many other challenges as well. The infamous uh, giant squid attack scene had to be entirely reshot, as it was originally filmed as taking place at dusk in a calm sea. It was then filmed again taking place at night and during a huge gale, both to increase the drama and to better hide the cables and other mechanical workings of the animatronic squid. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea received a positive reviews from critics and was the second highest grossing film of the year behind White Christmas, earning about $8 million in ticket sales in North America. And it's become a notable classic film of the uh, Disney Corporation. Audiences fond- fondly remember it primarily for its giant squid battle sequence as well as the Nautilus itself and James Mason's portrayal of Nemo. The film still holds about a 91% approval rating, according to Rotten Tomatoes. One of Disney's finest live-action adventures, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, brings Jules Verne's classic sci-fi tale to vivid life and features an awesome giant squid. The film was also highly praised for its performances of its leading actors. This was the first time that a major international film stars such as uh, Kirk Douglas, James Mason, and Peter Lorre had appeared in a Disney film, although Robert Newton, a well-known British actor, uh, played Long John Silver in Disney's Treasure Island in 1950, and Richard Todd, a well-known actor of British films, appeared in Disney's Technicolor live-action version of the uh, story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men in 1952. Now, Mason was uh, especially singled out for his performance of Captain Nemo, Again, according to Rotten Tomatoes, many people who had first seen him on screen in this film identify him most strongly with this role. Now, New York Times film critic Bosley Crowther gave the film a generally positive uh, review, stating that as fabulous and fantastic as anything he has ever done in cartoons is Walt Disney's live-action movie made from Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Turned out in cinemascope in color, it is as broad, fictitiously, as it is long, 128 minutes, and should prove a sensation, at least with the kids. In his controversial 1967 biography, The Disney Version, the usually prickly Richard Shackle stated that James Mason was superbly cast as the mad inventor Captain Nemo. Modern-day film critic Steve Biodrowski said the film is far superior to the majority of genre efforts from the period, or any period for that matter, with production design and technical effects that have dated hardly at all. Biodrowski also added that the film may occasionally succumb to some of the problems inherent in the source material, the episodic nature of the sh- does slow the pace a bit, but the strengths far outweigh its weaknesses, making it one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. It was nominated for several Academy Awards and won two. It won for Best Art Direction and Color from John Meehan and uh, Emil uh, Curry. And it also won for Best Special Effects from John Hench and Joshua Meter. The movie production included a song that was sung by Kirk Douglas, and yes, it was actually sung by Kirk Douglas and not lip-synced, as I originally thought it was. A Whale of a Tale is a fun little ditty that you might enjoy. Got a 
whale of a tale to tell you lads, a whale of a tale or two, about the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above, a whale of a tale and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Mermaid Minnie, met her down in Madagascar, she would kiss me. Any time that I would ask her, then one evening her flame of love blew out. Blow me down and pick me up, she swapped me for a trout. Got a whale of a tail to tell you lies, a whale of a tail or two. Got the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon about. A whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Typhoon Tessie, met her on the coast of Java when we kissed I. Bubbled up like molten lava, then she gave me the scare of my young life. Blow me down and pick me up, she was the captain's wife. Got a whale of a tail to tell you more, a whale of a tail or two. Got the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Harpoon Hannah. Had a face that made you shudder Lips like fish hooks And a nose just like a rudder If I kissed her And held her tenderly There's no sea monster big enough to ever frighten me. Got a whale of a tail to tell you lads, a whale of a tail or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. I've tried them. Very good. <laughs> Mess up. <laughs> no, Esmeralda, you're the only one on this bar who understands me. Give us a kiss. <laughs> Your whiskers tickle. Let me see your whiskers. Shave, honey. You're beginning to look like Nemo. Let's try it again. Come on, let's try it again. There was old man Nemo. Fed his crew on worms and fishes. Eels for breakfast. Slimy cold on seaweed dishes. When they ate it, they knew it wasn't beef. But they didn't It's been a smelling like a reef. Huh? <laughs> And by the way, Kirk Douglas was quoted a year or so ago as saying, It was a really rollicking song that everyone liked. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea holds a very special place in my heart because it was the movie that made me a star to young kids. In my earlier movies, I had played a rather rough characters, characters that kids probably shouldn't have seen. But when I played Ned Land in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, all of a sudden, I had a whole new audience. 
And that's the story of the movie. Now, as Disney fans know, the story doesn't quite end there. And on my next podcast, we'll take a look at the attraction that Disney developed. And that's my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. Show notes can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Looking to do some travel planning? Want to find an authorized Disney vacation planner? You should visit Destinations in Florida. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound On Music. You can find his music at ReverbNation.com slash SoundA. Our thanks also go to Doug for his continued contributions to the show. You can find links to other great Disney podcasts, as well as the latest Twitter feed and the Disney Buzz on DisneyPodcast.net. And don't forget to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There's a Hidden Mickeys app for finding and sharing hidden Mickeys at all of the Disney parks around the world. There's also an app designed especially for pin traders. You can keep track of all your pins and your wish lists. Please be generous with your time or a donation to Autism Speaks. We do hope that you've enjoyed your visit and that you drive home safely. Show number 134.